Shalom, friends. Welcome back to the Jewish Divorce Project. Noam here. This is our second of two Passover episodes. You should know that Sheva is out on some personal time and vacation, which is well-deserved and earned on her part. We look forward to her return and hearing about all the wonderful experiences that she's heard, and we wish her the best as she's enjoying her vacation now. This week, we have Dr. Jennifer Love, who is a California-based psychiatrist, author, and lecturer, and we had a wonderful conversation, and we hope you enjoy this conversation as well and uh, have a safe and meaningful and wonderful Passover this year. Chag Sameach. The Jewish Divorce Project, because marriage doesn't always work out and chicken soup doesn't always help. It's, it's the idea that the mistletoe doesn't provide me with the hope. Right. I put it there. So right. it's like when you're going through these things, where are you going to put your hope? Where are you going to put your hope? That's a great mm-hmm. one. Well, friends, uh, welcome to the Jewish Divorce Project. I'm here with my new friend, Dr. Jennifer Love, uh, who I met on Clubhouse. And we've had a fantastic time getting to know one another. Uh, Dr. Jennifer Love has invited me to a couple different rooms. Um, just of great conversation, uh, a lot about spirituality, some about kind of how we're tied to things by food and how food helps us get through things and is a real kind of spiritual path for us as well. And then there's also, um, we were involved in a conversation about the future and whether or not the future even exists, which is, I think, a pretty big conversation that people are having. That was weird. That was very weird. Uh, But it was fun nonetheless. I mean, I, I think these spaces are a lot of fun. Let me tell you a little bit about my friend, Dr. Jennifer Love. She is a board certified, uh, she's board certified in psychiatry, addiction, psychiatry, and addiction medicine as a diplomat of the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology and the American Board of Addiction Medicine. She attended medical school at Loma Linda University School of Medicine and completed her internship residency and subspecialty fellowship training at the University of Hawaii. She served as chief resident and as clinical faculty at the University of Hawaii Department of Psychiatry before returning to California, where she is currently in group practice with the acclaimed Amen Clinics. Jennifer, it's great to have you here, it really is. Can I tell people Thanks about your- me. Absolutely. Can I tell people about the book that you've written? Would that yes. be okay with you? Thank you. Uh-huh. Okay. Guys, folks, this is a great book. It's called When Crisis Strikes, Five Steps to Help Your Brain, Body, and Life from Chronic Stress. And she wrote it with her partner, right? This her work partner. And uh, it it appeals to this idea. The global pandemic has thrown our daily lives into chaos. I think we all know that. But many are feeling the crush of additional chronic stresses from personal crisis, loss, and trauma that have no simple solution and can be mentally and physically debilitating. I think a lot of us know what that feels like. You may not even be aware of what's happening to your mind and body as multiple stressors layer on top of one another. And so Dr. Jennifer Love, my friend here, a physician, along with her co-author, can you help me pronounce his name, please? Cheltura Hovick. Cheltura Hovick. Yeah, Dr. Hovick, it's fine. <laughs> Dr. Hovick, that, I should have just gone yeah. there. Well, yeah. he's a neuropsychologist and uh, the two of you look at the brain and body's intricate, intertwined, pre-wired response system to stress that can result in a wide range of mental and physiological changes in the midst of crisis, that awful feeling can feel permanent. And I think that you know, this book is going to help out a lot of people feel that it's not permanent, that they can get past it and they can 
find something new in their lives, something refreshing rather than constantly dealing with this crisis. Interestingly, we wrote the book before COVID. Did you really? Yeah, we turned in the first manuscript January 1st of 2020. Oh, wow. So it... You know, it, it broadens the the context for the book, of course, because with the publishing world, it didn't come out till the end of 2020. But it, it's really about the crises that we all go through in life, especially as we get older. You know, we may have kids with special needs or our parents are aging or have cognitive decline or, mm. you know, we lose people we love and have to deal with mental illness or cancer or all sorts of things. So these are like those life crises that tend to just compile because we never just have one thing going on. It's that and someone loses a job and we're having financial worries. And then, you know, we have this kind of escalating stress. So we really took the tools in our toolboxes as clinicians and came up with this program that kind of makes it accessible for people. It's approachable. It's not so many steps that you get overwhelmed. You can do it by yourself. If you are overwhelmed, do it with a therapist. Yeah. And there's sub steps in there. Um, you know, nothing is, is simple. I don't like the whole five step, like the way it sounds, but that's what publishers like. Um, but, you know, I, I think that this is, I certainly used all the steps in, in 2020. Um, I still do now. And as I was reading through Exodus in preparation for today's podcast, I was realizing, um, and also the information you sent me on the four cups and well, you'll get into all of that. You can explain it better than I can, but how interestingly close that is to the psychological construct that Dr. Mm. Hovick and I came up with. Um, oh, fascinating. So, yeah, it is. Well, it's interesting that you say that because a while back I read when I was first experiencing deep grief uh, for the very first time in my life when a friend died, I picked up a book called um, Psychological Perspectives on Traditional Jewish Practices. And the one on grief mm. and mourning seem to be most attuned to what psychology would consider a natural grief process and cycle. Just the first initial moments of being isolated and alone and just dealing with the you know, first news of it uh, and the heartbreak of it all and being in that moment and really grieving and then eventually getting to a point where you're mourning it, right? And then you're trying to move on and you're trying to get closure and make meaning of all of it. Uh, it was really fascinating. It was really fascinating. Mm -hmm. So I, this, yeah, uh, yeah, this, I'm looking forward to seeing how the four cups applies to uh, the structure that you have set up here. So let's dive into that. But, uh, you know, even before we do, uh, Jen, if you could, Jennifer, if you could please um, uh, tell us just briefly a little bit about your spiritual background. This is the Jewish Divorce Project, right? We come at this from a particular spiritual and religious lens. And it's always important to get co-religionists view on things. And so I'm just curious, you know, just a little bit more about you and for our listeners, right? Tell us a little bit briefly about your spiritual upbringing and where you're at right now. So my spiritual upbringing was in a Christian church, um, an evangelical Christian church. It was scripture-based. So my whole life I was reading from Genesis to Revelation, <laughs> and studying it and um, really in-depthly. And when I was married, I was actually married to a Presbyterian minister. Mm -hmm. So my own trauma story is quite traumatic um, with given the way that divorce is viewed in the Christian church. Um, I think my own faith journey now or my spiritual journey is complicated. And um, I don't know that I really understand it mm. 
Uh. Um, so we might have to do like a five podcast series on that. Um, or I need a therapist. Um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they have those um, and they're really good. So yeah, I'm not sure about that. I, I love thinking about um, really deep things that hit home. Mm-hmm. And I've worked with clergy, I've published research on mental health and, and uh, clergy working with mental health mm-hmm. um, and served on a faith-based suicide prevention task force mm-hmm. um, that was when I was in Hawaii and it was all clergy. And then I was like, the consultant <laughs> to them, the non-clergy in the room, and everyone from every faith was invited to participate. And it was really trying to get the youth suicide rate lowered mm-hmm. um, and to have churches intervene because depression and suicide is sometimes something that goes unrecognized yeah. in many places of worship. And so, unfortunately, is also on the rise during the pandemic amongst young people. Oh, yeah. Yeah. For sure. So, um, you know, we were talking about at the top of uh, the show, the top of the podcast about this idea of hope, right? How it's found in different places. Uh, Mm -hmm. And that certainly speaks to what we're talking about today. You know, here we are in the midst of Passover 2021. This is the second Passover we celebrated in quarantine. I'm sure it'll be the second Easter that people celebrate in quarantine. Uh, And so there's lots of second other big holidays that people celebrate in quarantine. It's weighing on me, certainly personally, I should just share that. I haven't seen my family since December of 2019. And so Passover is always a good time to get together with them, uh, particularly in divorce, wanting my kids to be with my family, you know, uh, during Passover. Uh, it, there's a lot of responsibility and pressure that I personally feel myself. And uh, this year, I'll just uh, admit and share that I, you know, went very minimal. There were any number of things that could have been done for Passover. Uh, and I just picked up matzah and wine and that was it. And that was all we really had energy for and turned in for the Zoom uh, Seder and, uh, you know, did that for about an hour and that was good. I think it was good enough, uh, but that was, it was also really tough. Um, uh, but I, you know, I would like to say you did have a child dressed up like a frog. Yes, so I did. Yeah. You get an extra point for that, right. for I one did. of the plagues. That's okay. Fair enough. I did make it somewhat experiential. Yes. I, okay. Yeah. I'll take, I'll take credit for that. I'll give myself the pat on the back and I'll reward myself for that. Thank you. I, I appreciate you picking me up. I, I was going down a, a pretty sad rabbit hole there. Thanks. That's right. what good friends are for. Let's talk about this idea of here we are Passover. We have this concept of liberation theology, right? Which is that God, you know, offers this inspir- this inspirational hope and concern for the poor and, and polit, uh, for the poor and political liberation of oppressed people, uh, and so it's similar also to black and feminist liberation theologies in that it seeks to inspire those to rise above those who have been oppressed and rise above their oppressors. And the Passover story, as I've you know tried to explain, is is one of liberation. I think that's the main theme that everyone taps into when we talk about it. It's freedom. And what does it mean to free oneself and to be free and to be a free people as well? And so, you know, we have this idea of liberation theology coming up in the Passover story. It looks like you froze there. Am I, you keep freezing on me, but I'm not freezing. Okay, well, you just froze on my end. Anyway, I'm gonna get back to it. Uh, We have this idea of liberation theology in the Jewish tradition. And if we look at Exodus chapter six, verses five through seven, there's something very interesting that's said. 
which is, uh, I have now heard, this is God speaking, I have now heard the moaning of the Israelites because the Egyptians are holding them in bondage. And I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the Israelite people, this is again, God speaking to Moses. I am the Lord, the God, uh, Lord, their God. I will free you from the labors of the Egyptians and deliver you from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments and I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And what we've done in our tradition is we've taken that verse and the four different mentions that God says, God says, free you, uh, deliver you, redeem you and take you. Um, those are these four assurances that God gives the Israelite people, thus inspiring them to enter into this covenant and liberate themselves um, from bondage. And we take those four instances and they become the four cups of wine at the Passover Seder. And so uh, thus God represents a place to be free uh, and also offers the Israelites a path to be free through those uh, four mentions as well. So this is kind of where we get the idea of liberation theology within the Jewish tradition. And of course, I was thinking of this during Passover. Uh, and of course, since I've got divorce on the brain, right? It's, you know, I'm trying to, I'm filtering this story to have some type of meaning for me in what it means to be divorced and what does that look like? And so I take these mentions in the four cups, the being free, being delivered, being redeemed and taken um, to mean something to me in terms of a spiritual approach to this new phase in my life that I'm going through. And I wonder if that help is helpful for other people that are going through this phase in their life. But I look at it like, um, the first one is free you, right, from this life, this circumstance to another one, deliver you through an internal process of growth and transformation, redeem you by showing you a new life past this circumstance, past divorce, right, and take you, um, you will not be, um, you know, uh, harmed by this, um, um, but, you know, you will not be defined by this moment, but the moments after this moment, uh, and so, uh, what does it really mean to go through a spiritual process um, using those four elements there? Uh, and that spoke to me in this way, uh, because now here I am at the two-year mark personally. Uh, and so it's just, um, you know, it's an inter interesting spiritual place to be. And so uh, I, I'm very, you know, I'm curious to talk to you about this and to hear your thoughts as well, you know, in terms of your divorce and what went on, uh, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, you know, how maybe you grew from that process as well. Well, I love this because, you know, we were talking before the podcast about um, my experience in the church and divorce is something that's forbidden completely and marriage is forever and women submit to their husbands and, you know, it, that's just what it is. And it doesn't matter what goes on for a lot of people. There's guilt when you leave when you even think about leaving, um, there's guilt and it, it, people postpone their decisions for years and years and live in these really unhealthy situations um, because there, there isn't for lack of participation or it just isn't there, this ability to redeem the marriage. And so I and many of my friends, um, but I know I can speak for myself how much guilt I went through. I was terrified to tell my mother. And, you know, I've spoken with friends of like, I knew there was something wrong. I didn't know what it was. I was just praying there would be something big. So I'd have like an excuse. 
right? This idea that two people just can fall out of love or that the relationship was brought together for unhealthy reasons and that's not where they're supposed to be. That's just not something, you know, that is talked about in um, the faith that I was raised in. God brings people together and he does it for a reason and you're just going to sit there until you figure out what it is. Um, And so it was really hard for me and I lost... um, I lost a lot of the support that I had when I was married. Um, And that was, it was really challenging. And um, so I think what I love about going back to Exodus, you know, I read Exodus just like you did. And I looked at, you know, your translations of the ancient texts are pretty similar to the ones um, that I've looked at. And, but for some reason, Christians don't go back to this God of delivery. It's more of like, you have to do certain things. You know, you have to, you know, show the fruits of the spirit and you have to forgive and all of this. And, and we forget that God is a God of redemption from life oppression and that it doesn't have to be slavery. Um, like physical slavery um, for God to want to redeem you from something. Um, So for me, like, even when you brought this topic to me, it was like, wow, like this, this feels freeing in and of itself. Like there's a little part of me. It's like, I'm marching out of Egypt and, you know, it's been 10 (laughs) years for me. And I was like, let's go, like, let's get out of here. My spirit, it's like my body left a long time ago, but my spirit, part of my spirit is, has been stuck back in that land. And um, so I loved this approach because it, and I'm totally going to tell all of my friends Sweet. Um, right. about this podcast, because I think a lot of them need to hear it. Well, do you mind if I ask you, um, you know, what was part of you that was kind of left back in that space that needed to move on from it? You broke up in that question. So I didn't Oh, sorry. It. So what you, you said that um, there was part of you that was left behind, right? Or left back in that space that needed to be freed. Mm-hmm. Do you mind sharing yeah. what that was? Um, you know, it's hard to say because it's, it's something that I've just been realizing in the past time that we've been talking about doing this podcast. Yeah. Um, probably shame, mm-hmm. guilt, um, I know I did the right thing. Like I've been blessed from the beginning, knowing that I was doing the right thing for myself. Um, but there's a piece that feels, I think, blemished. Oh. Like, I think there's a part of me that always I don't know how I'll have to think about this more. Um, and maybe I can tell you, you can put it in your notes later, but I, I feel like, you know, there's still a toe back in Egypt somehow. Uh-huh. Um, maybe because discussions like this weren't a part of my recovery. And, you know, I tried going to a divorce recovery, like a faith-based group. And I called the woman up and I said, okay, I really want to come, but I'm worried my ex is going to come, even though like, this is my church and my parish, like, and he's, you know, doesn't live here. Like, 
I have this weird feeling it's going to come. She's like, yeah. tell me his name. And I'm not kidding. The night before she called and said, I'm so sorry to tell you, he signed oh, up no. for this class. Mm. So I called him up and I said, or I texted him and, and I said, I, I don't want you to come. Like, this is mine. Right. Go find your own. And he's right. like, no, I'm going, I'm doing it. Like he just took it from me and I was stuck in a position where you know I was really angry at the time because here he was in ministry at all these resources I was alone I had this one church that didn't drive me crazy and I I wanted to know that it was okay I wanted to have that that church support and and that was not available to me and so that maybe I, I, I had to process it all on my own and walk through that just with my own acceptance, which probably isn't, it's a strength of mine only because I've had to, it's a muscle I've had to exercise my whole mm-hmm. life. But sometimes you just want to be handed something that's helpful. You don't want to always have to dig. Go and find your own. It. Yeah. Exactly and I found a little bit of that in Exodus in Passover. What parts did you find in Passover? No, when you're talking about the four cups. Like oh, and the four cups. Like part of saying, that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. It okay. didn't even take me four cups of wine to get there. See? And the four yeah. cups of wine then just become a nice kind of, you know, bonus for the evening because you're working a little I'll buzz while you're feeling free, right? <laughs> free people should try it out. There you go. See? And the best part about it is Patron tequila is now kosher for Passover. So you could have four margaritas oh if you wanted to. No, I don't drink tequila, but um, that's, I, I'm glad to know it's kosher. So we're advancing in such amazing ways. This is why I love my people. <laughs> we're incredibly modern and hip. Yeah. Wow. It's good to be Jewish. We endorse Patron tequila. So Jen, I was, Jennifer, I was curious, can you please share with us um, your five steps uh, and how you think that they could apply to this um, liberation theology and help people through moments of crisis? Yeah. So what I would love is as I go through the five steps for you to point out what you see, because I will. I'm going to take, yeah, I'm interested in okay. your viewpoint on this. Um, so the, the steps are like the fingers of the hand. Um, and so they go through from the thumb to the pinky finger. Um, and the first one, the thumb is get a grip. Mm-hmm. So it's really about understanding the problem. And it seems obvious, but a couple of things need to happen is one, you can't get a full understanding of the nature of the problem if you're using escape mechanisms. So if you're diving into work, coming home and drinking too much wine every night or getting into video games or pornography or whatever it is, and you're escaping, you're never going to be able to get through the healing process because you aren't going to be able to get at the deep stuff. So it's not just saying, okay, I'm having a divorce. That's my problem because you and I have both been through divorces and we've probably had very different reactions and experiences. I always say there's nothing to do what happens to you in life. It's the context is what happens to you. So step one is about looking at, okay, I have this crisis going on. What is the context, Uh right? Whether it's financially what's going on in my life, work-wise, where am I in my career? Where am I with my family? You know, it's all those things, but then even digging a little deeper. And I do a lot of excavation in my work with my patients because, you know, who we became, who we are started when we were, you know, in diapers. 
and how we started observing the world and the things that we observed and experiences experienced um, as we grew up are now the lens through which we view life. And so I remember a time and, you know, even though I'm a psychiatrist, when you go through your own stuff, like yeah. you aren't magically like, you know, given this gift of being able to be all, you know, know the right yeah. things to say, like you yeah, lose your shit like everyone else. Yeah. yeah. So I remember the day my, you know, this happens in every divorce, you know, that if I was in the house, he was coming to move his stuff out. And I knew that day was coming and that's normal. Right. And we talked about it. What are you going to take? Which bed do you want? You know, are you going to take the spoons? You know, you just kind of make this inventory and, and do it. And the day he came, I just internally went like bananas. Like I was so angry and so upset and I just didn't have words and he kept taking stuff and taking stuff. And I'm like, but wait, that's mine. And he's like, well, you're keeping this. I want this. I'm like, but you, that's from my birthday. And those are literally the only words I could, well, my my mom bought us this. And so I'm taking this and I I, I couldn't get the words out of like like, an adult would say, well, when I realized later and was able to step out of my own trauma as I do trauma work with other people, um, my favorite saying is if it's hysterical, it's historical. You know, so I was having this reaction where I couldn't even get words out. And what I realized later looking back is I was this four-year-old little girl whose dad was cleaning out the house when he left. Uh-huh. So it, my brain regressed uh-huh. to this place. And so my reaction was one where I didn't have words because four-year-olds don't talk back to their dads. They don't have words. All they know is everything's leaving and they're being left in an empty house. And that was really surprising to me because it wasn't um, an event that I had recognized as being traumatic. It didn't come up until this moment. And I remember his friend who was helping him move looking at me like, who is this crazy? Like, I've never seen her so crazy before, you know, because that's just not my personality. I'm pretty reserved and mostly dignified, um, at least in public spaces. So, you know, for his friend. Four-year-old on the inside. Yeah. Of course, nobody recognizes that on the outside. No, no. And so that's part of really understanding, you know, it's getting that grip. And that was that part that even I didn't really have a hold of going through that particular crisis in my life. Right. Um, but that's that's part of, of understanding um, because I recognized as I went on that every little piece hit and it just chipped away at another trauma, even from him deciding to sue me for spousal support. Sure. So it's like, okay, well you leave, you do this horrible thing. I'm gonna divorce you, we're in a no fault state. And now I'm gonna have to give you my paycheck month after month after month, after year after year I'm going to be working for you after what you did. And it was kind of like this little girl who year after year lived in a house where, you know, my mom can afford furniture. So it, it took a lot of work, right? But this is the step one. I'm kind of yep. digressing a little bit. It's really getting that full understanding um, because if you're only looking at the divorce and you miss those pieces, you're going to miss the crazy. And the crazy is the part that you want to treat because that's what makes you feel the most miserable. So the second step, the pointer finger is pinpoint what you can control. And we go through three questions. The first is list out everything you can't 
control. Because when you're in a life crisis, your brain is wired to look at the alarm only. You don't take your eyes off the fire. You want to make sure it's not going to spread. So you're not looking at options. You know, when you're faced with the bear, when you're hiking, you're not like, oh, am I wearing steel-toed boots? Should I kick the bear? Should I run from the bear? Like, what would be my best gear? Like, that doesn't happen. This is a fight or flight, right? So everything I can't control over, my brain wants to see so I can, like, keep my eyes on that. So then we have to teach people how in this step, how do you look at, okay, well, what are the things you can control in your life? Because initially it oftentimes feels like nothing. And when you get in, you realize there actually is a lot you can control from your sleep to your schedule, to even your work hours and making decisions that you would say, well, I can't do this. Everyone relies on me. I can't stop being the scout leader. I can't do this and that. And really you can, um, but it's like, what, what are the things in my life on a daily basis that I do have control over? And then once we kind of um, establish that, then we go back and we say, okay, looking at the things we can't control, what can we do about them? So if your crisis is you have a parent who is in the hospital with some horrible thing and you can't control that, well, you can talk with the doctor, you can make sure you're on consent. You can talk to them about, um, their wishes, you know, and if it's terminal, you know, how do you want the end of your life to be? And, and you can make arrangements. You can talk to the social worker. You can see, you know, in-home hospice, like you can work on all the things you can't control. Step two is not about creating a huge to-do list. It's really about brainstorming. And the purpose is to challenge that sense of helplessness that crisis brings to a duel. Because when we go through this big crisis, we totally just wanna hide out in a blanket fort. Um, and then it's like, I can't do anything about this. It's like you're knocked down on the ground and you feel like someone has to come pick me up. I can't get up, this is too big. And so the brain starts learning that actually there are some things you can do. So then that leads us into step three, the middle finger. And it is exactly what you're thinking. It's giving your crisis a middle finger. The middle finger is a finger of action. You know, can I say the F word? Fuck yeah. you, cancer. Go for right? it. Right? Yeah. And it. yep. it's, you have to find the fire in your belly to get moving. And I tell people, we use a lot of different motivational techniques for this step. Because a lot of times we don't want to do the things even we want to do. But all you have to do is love one thing, one thing more than you hate your crisis to get started. One thing more than you hate your crisis. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. So we, in step three, we talk people through um, kind of dividing things into easier tasks than the tougher tasks, you know, some just basic cognitive behavioral stuff to get hmm. people moving. Um, through the tough things that we feel frozen about oftentimes in crisis. Um, the fourth step is a ring finger, which is not a finger of strength, it's softness, it's intimacy. Um, it's where people wear, you know, special pieces of jewelry. Um, and this is called pullback. And it's a step of reflection and simplification. Um, and it's really kind of thinking about who, who was I before the crisis? 
Where am I now? Where did I think I would be? How do I get back over there? It's almost like a renaissance. You know, what am I, like, what is my life lacking now that's actually important to me? What do I value in life? You know, if I value peace, then I can't keep taking my ex back to court, right? So it's kind of getting in touch right. with the things that you value. More um, yeah. Mindfulness, being in the moment, um, reflecting on your <clears> life. <throat> who am I? Who do I want to be? Like right. really fun spiritual stuff. And the fifth step is the pinky finger, um, which is hold on and let go. You know, we did a lot of research on the hand for this book. And one of the things we researched, and there's surprisingly large amount of information on the internet about this. Mm. If you had to have a finger cut off, if you had to pick one, which would you pick? Everyone always says the pinky and you see it in all the movies. Don't pick the pinky. Half of the hand's strength is in this, you know, opposable thumb. The pinky is really important. And it's this idea of what am I going to choose to hold on to and what am I going to let go of? And I think of it in my mind as a hot air balloon, right? I want to fly away, but to do that, to move on, to be free, I have to let go of the ropes. I have to let go of the anchor. Mm. And so what enables me to be free in life? I may need to let go of unhealthy relationships. I may need to let go of grudges. What do I want to hold on to? Maybe I need to hold on to my sense of humor and like, consciously bring that back into my life. Um, or I need to hold on to a new healthy habit, um, whatever it is. So um, the steps are about walking people through this process of like getting to the core root of the issue into this kind of recovery, this idea of just being able to move forward in a way that feels, even though it's crisis, you know, and we may have scars, but that there's, there can be beauty and stepping forward through crisis and coming so. out of it. Um, and much of it is unexpected, but when you are intentional as you walk through it, um, it can be really helpful. So I was writing down notes as you were saying all this, and I was listening intently, I have to say, and I, my, I, okay. So I think there's a lot to be related here to uh, this, the, well, the Exodus experience. Um, much of what you're talking about to the whole arc of the narrative, actually. And it's first, I think, important just to state that there's this beautiful image of um, knowing that Mitzrayim means from a narrow place. That's, you know, what we translate Egypt as, but literally translated mm -hmm. Mitzrayim means from a narrow space. And um, of course, that narrowness is the narrowness of slavery and degradation or what it means to really objectify people and marginalize them uh, and how it's just so restrictive and suffocating as well. And so um, if you look at a map, and you look at the way that the, um, the Nile River, which runs right through Egypt, right, this main you know, symbol of, uh, of Egyptian power and might, um, as it leaves Egypt and branches out into the rest of the surrounding area, it looks like a hand and the different fingers branching out. So it's really a wonderful kind of coincidence that you've got this, you know, five fingers of, you know, responding to crisis uh, in your philosophy and also just this image of what it means to be free, that to know that like, you know, going from that narrow place means to a place of great expanse in that way. And that your steps help to remind people that you can get to a great, a much more freer place, right? By going through these circumstances and through, you know, these steps. So that's just Rabbi, one thing. 
Yeah. Is it a coincidence? Is it a coincidence? I don't, it, I, I'm going to say for now it's a coincidence. For now it's a coincidence. We could have a room on, on Clubhouse. Something tells me that maybe you had an Israelite ancestor way back when who thought, my great, 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 something times infinity granddaughter. I don't know. Right? It's going to write a book someday. And this uh-huh. idea of the Nile to a hand is going to be really impressive for them. And just yeah. to, out of curiosity, if you were going to chop off a finger, which one would it be? Could it be the ring so, one we're talking about divorce? Like no. you need a ring finger? I mean, you can, but I don't recommend it. Actually, it's if you, you want to pick from your non-dominant hand and you want to pick the tip of the first finger of your non-dominant hand. Because when you lose that, finger, my yeah, if you have hand. to lose the whole thing, that's fine. But, but if, you know, like in all those movies, they usually cut off like half the finger. Right. Well, they got um, a lot of digits. Your, sure. Your middle finger can take over for a lot of what your first finger. So the non-dominant hand, the first finger is what you want to do. Non-dominant hand first. So index finger on, the, on my left hand. That's what I'm going with. Yeah. I'm not yeah. giving up my middle fingers, not for anything. If I do that, it's like silencing myself. Why would I, you know? I mean, right. What would a rabbi do without his middle th- finger? Without his middle finger. All right. Well, never think that we're not giving you practical information on this podcast, everyone. Okay. So as you were mentioning your five steps, this is what I was thinking uh, aligned with uh, the Exodus narrative. When you talked about get a grip, right? We have Moses who comes in and recognizes his role in this story, how he's also an Israelite. He starts out being raised as an Egyptian prince and then realizes mm-hmm. he's an Israelite. And that's when like this moment of awareness comes to him that says his story is tied up in other people's and to really be free, right? He's not free. And to really be free, he has to liberate others in the process too. And so getting that grip, I think for him on a personal level is just recognizing the circumstances around him, much like you said, right? And that he's not really a prince. He's in a circumstance that is actually very restrictive, not only to him, but to other people as well. And recognizing that and then making other people aware of that as well, noting that slavery isn't the lifestyle that they have to live in, right? That they can be free, that they can yearn and dream and strive for something greater and more free than that and completely free, right? Is what his primary role is. He needs to be the embodiment of that on earth to show people what it's like. And so in that way, he presents people, right? With a better understanding of the circumstance. Um, Interestingly, though, he was also a murderer, right? In terms of the Egyptian taskmaster that he killed? Yeah, he killed the taskmaster who was beating up some worker, right? Well, a a slave, slave, but you could argue that he saved his life. I mean, murder is one way to look at it, sure. Right, he could have, you know, but but he fled, right? He knew he'd be killed. So he was in exile for a while. And so this was all before God called him. Right. And I think that that's a really important piece of the story is, you know, we always talk about Moses and he couldn't speak. And, you know, when I was growing up, it's like, God can use anyone, even with a speech impediment, you know, like, right. like that's the big deal. Big deal is this guy's probably carrying around this guilt and this fear yeah. because of what he had done. Yeah. And here he is now called by God. Like, that's a pretty major thing. You know, like I'm judging myself on divorce. Like, <laughs> agreed. you know, it, agreed. it gives us a nice context. I think. Okay. I, I, okay, good. Thank you for bringing that up. My teachers in school would be really happy that you did that. Noam, you oh, left good. out a really big piece. Thank God someone saved your butt. Okay. Uh, good to know. Thank you for doing that on this podcast, which a lot of other people will hear. I'm not upset about that whatsoever. But going on to your second point, pinpointing control, 
Um, I think about that in terms of the Israelite story when Moses gives them specific instructions of things to do and how they actually start understanding what their role in all this is. I think about, you know, uh, when it came time for the 10th plague and the, the death of the firstborn, and the only thing they really could do is smear the blood on their doorpost as a way of saying that they were part of, you know, God's people at that point, right? Mm-hmm. It, it has a certain mystery to it as to why they would do it, but nonetheless, it was something that they could do during a particularly mysterious time, a particularly scary time. Uh, mm-hmm. And I also think about how one of the main instructions is that comes up in the process of this story unfolding is that the people are commanded to retell this story to their children, right? That it may not make all that much sense right now what we're going through, but we will retell it at some other point as a way to give it meaning and context and understanding so that it does fit into your life in some type of organized way. Hmm. And that is what we do today. Right. And that is meant to be part of that intergenerational storytelling that is so helpful to children. We've talked about that before, the stories that bind us and children having a much better idea of who they are and what they're capable of because of things that their ancestors have gone through. And so this story of liberation is meant to be one that can inspire future generations in that way, which is why I think it's speaking to both of us in terms of divorce, because it speaks to us in terms of this idea of finding a new life or being more free in some way or leaving something that was restrictive behind. I like it. Okay. Really brilliant. (laughs) All right. So then the third is push into motion. This just spoke Mm -hmm. to me in terms of being crossing the Red Sea. We have this as being one of the first major trials Mm -hmm. that our people face after they've left Egypt. They get to the Red Sea and they see it there and then they see Pharaoh's chariots coming up from behind and they're scared and they start saying it would have been better for us to die in Egypt than out here in watery graves. And so they want to turn back, but, you know, and God, and, and here's one of the greatest parts of the story that I love. It's no commentary involved whatsoever, right? Moses goes to God and says, what are we supposed to do? And God's like, what are you talking to me for, right? You got to push through this. And so he goes and he tries to push through it. And then there are these wonderful Jewish legends, which talk about how the sea didn't really split until one of the people jumped in. He had to demonstrate it to the people that he was going to actually be brave enough, that he was gonna have faith in the moment and faith that they could actually get through it. And then there's another legend that says that the sea didn't split till people were walking through and it kind of was up to their nostrils. I just love the symbolism behind it in the sense that like, you know, it can be really difficult, right? But even when it's at its most difficult, when you feel like you're drowning in this crisis, you can still push forward and the seas will part at some point that you will be able to walk on dry ground and you won't be kind of floating in something of such insecurity. Mm -hmm. Um, Pull back, that for me was the Sinai moment and the golden calf, the people regress a little bit and they go into this worshiping the golden calf, Uh, but then they also get this covenant with God. And so they've got this new context in which they're going to address things. So they've taken a step back, but now they're still looking forward. And then the last part, hold on and let go, that's the wandering in, Egypt, uh, wandering in, in the wilderness, that they have to take all this time, these 40 years to really kind of like slough off this old slave mentality that whole generation's got to die. And they've got to learn how to be free people in the wilderness rather than spending another 400 years in slavery, just kind of perpetuating that mentality and that way of life and that identity. So it it very much spoke to me. Were you expecting that? No, I wasn't. I I think we just need to, we need to collaborate on a, 
on the five steps. We may need to write an article on this. The five steps in Passover. For the spiritually minded through divorce. Yeah. Right. That could be really helpful. Yeah. Look at that. You know, we had spoken before about the idea of internal locus of control versus external locus of control. Mm -hmm. And I wonder um, where that plays a factor in this whole, you know, sense of liberation and personal liberation. Um, I wrote about this in the second chapter, right? Pinpoint what you can control. So there's this uh, continuum of, of kind of personality types. Um, and when we use the term locus of control, it's, you know, just confusing medical Latin jargon that we have to use in medicine, but it's looking at the location, how your worldview of, am I in control or is something outside of me in control? It's identifying people who are more self-reliant versus more passive, but there's this continuum. So it's kind of like, you know, someone has a garden in their backyard and they're growing tomatoes and the opossums come in at night and eat all the tomatoes. They're like, oh, woe is me. I'll never be able to, yeah, I'll never be able to grow tomatoes in my yard. Whereas someone else might say, huh, I wonder how I get rid of these or keep these guys out, you know, without using poison or something that, you know, the dogs will eat. And, you know, so they Google, you know, possum free fences for your, you know, tomato plants and, and go out and build that. Right. So there's this idea that, okay, well, there's a problem. I can do something about it. Um, uh, someone I knew many years ago um, was married and came off birth control and a couple months later got pregnant. And they kept telling everyone, it's a miracle. It's a miracle. I can't believe we got pregnant. And I, and I knew her story and, and I, I didn't say anything, but all I really wanted to say was, no, it's biology. Mm. That's what happens mm. when you come off the birth control. Yeah. Like, you, you know, you're 20 something. Yeah. yeah. Like that's, it's not a miracle, you know, but it, it was very much like, you know, they were the couple that they didn't meet because he walked across the room and introduced themselves. They met because God had ordained it. So there's nothing wrong with that. You know, and we were talking the other day, you and I, about spirituality and how that plays into this psychological construct right. of having an internalized versus an externalized uh, worldview. Um, and I do think the two can coincide. I don't think that to be a person of faith that you have to have an entirely external locus of control because most of the people I faith of faith that I know do things in life. I need money. I'm going to go get a job. I'm not going to wait for God to give me a job. I'm right. going to go out and I'm going to go look for a job right. and you know, or my car needs to be fixed. I'm going to go out and do what needs to be done. And so there are people who take charge. Oh. So, but they still, that doesn't mean they don't pray. It doesn't mean they don't hope for miracles, but they also will take steps. So let's say they wanna be healed from something, um, but they will also take steps to promote that healing. Um, and so I, I do talk about that in the book because someone who has a more external locus of control will really struggle with this second step of pinpointing what you can control because they're, you know, get to this idea that, well, we can't control anything and, or I have to wait until God tells me what I can control. 
Um, and so some of those people may need even like to work with a therapist on that to kind of get some outside help to work through the steps. And it's interesting too, because we talk about this in the context of divorce and particularly in religious communities and faith-based communities, it can be really difficult to find a way outside of your marriage, like you were talking about, that is completely frowned upon in your community. And so the communal pressure to keep oneself in a marriage can feel enslaving in and of itself. Right. And that, Mm -hmm. and you know, enslavement is a big word to use when it comes to divorce. We shouldn't dismiss the fact that there are some marriages are that are actually like that, that are abusive and just unhealthy and toxic for people that they really are like an enslavement. And, uh, and in those circumstances, someone should certainly seek liberation and freedom and that lots of people should be trying to help them and understand them in the process. Um, But even for other people who aren't in circumstances like that, that, you know, there can be a real restrictive element to marriage that you can think that like, you're not reaching your fullest potential because this relationship is a shackle of some kind. And I think that's a perfectly normal and natural way to feel. And then to want to live a life outside of that confine so that you can feel freer and completely free is also a totally natural thing as well. And I think is also a much more new concept for our generation. By that, I mean, I think about my grandparents, my great grandparents who married for utility and survivalist reasons, right? To share Mm -hmm. wealth and to pass that on to the family and through the family. And then you get to my parents' generation who, you know, a lot of people would describe, and I'm sure also my grandparents' generation as being somewhat miserable in marriage, but they were committed. You know, my parents are still married. A lot of people's parents are still married, even though the divorce rate is still so high. The point is to say that those people stayed in the marriage, even though that they were unhappy, right? Because that's just what you did right? That's part of the family culture. And there are plenty of other families who have a culture completely opposite of that. That's my ex's family culture, right? A lot of them get divorced. Um, but the other point is to say that like my, our generation, right? Looks at his marriage as not being something that has to be a completely, a complete life investment, right? That it's not an investment that you lose, right? That it's an experience that you have and it doesn't have to be permanent and it doesn't have to be the only thing that you end up experiencing in your life. And because it doesn't have to be that, you also have this opportunity to grow in whatever way in completely free way that you'd like to. And I don't know, I I think that might be frustrating for a lot of people in my parents' generation. I know that there's this concept of, and I'm rambling, but there's this concept of the disappearing woman, um, you know, in terms of women who committed their lives to being a mother and to being a spouse, but never really saw themselves outside of that identity. Uh, And so, you know, I just think about how this concept of freedom and being completely who we are as individuals is much more part of the language of marital life now than I think it may have been in my parents' generation, because it certainly wasn't anything that I heard people talking about. And that's, I think that's also somewhat short-sighted because I don't know how many conversations I would have been involved in, but my point is to say that, like, I find it to be part of the discussion now, that Um, marriage was a shackle to a lot of people and they needed a way out so that they could figure out exactly who they are and they're much better defined as an individual rather than through their marriage. That is something that I think is still more a radical idea for like my background and the Mm -hmm. people that um, I grew up with. I I found the reason um, that, but 
before I did, like, you know, I could see this kind of division between us. And it was a therapist that I saw during the divorce process who just said to me, you completely outgrew him. And I was like, what? And so I was out with my friends one night and I'm like, my therapist said I outgrew him. And they're like, duh, right. <laughs> I have no idea. But they had been watching this go on for quite some time. And I waited to, to get married. I didn't get married very young. I was in my late twenties. Um, and which is, you know, for my friends, um, 18, 19, 20, 21 was not unusual. Um, but I still waited until there was that reason, oh. until I found it out. And I think that was part of why the wedge was there. I kept going, there's something going on. What is it? I can't, you know, I'd ask, are you depressed? Like what's going on? No, no, everything's fine. And, you know, it was just all BS. I, I had no idea. Um, so that played into it. But when I had the reason, then I was like, okay, well, this is a not acceptable reason to, you know, like, I'm not going to go to bed with you next to me every night because I can't trust you. Right. Like you don't have my back. And I still had to wait for that big reason. And even that wasn't enough for some of the people I knew who were like, well, big deal. My husband lies to me all the time, or at least he didn't do this, or at least he didn't do that. And I'm like, I wish you would have done that instead of this, because the thing that he did was the thing that dug in, you know, when I'm excavating into those old fossils and it would have been much less uh, traumatizing for me if he had done something different that didn't involve that trauma. Like if he had, you know, cheated or whatever, like I would have been like, fine, okay, go. But it, it right. wouldn't have hit me that same way. So it'll be interesting to see the, this new generation that's coming up a little bit behind us that's kind of just getting married. Um, but I see very few people, maybe it's just who I attract in my practice. The divorce rate is 70% where mm. I live and where I practice. So my it's gosh. very high. Um, yeah, lots of second and third marriages. Um, and the divorce rate does tend to go up um, with that. But so there are many people who don't go into marriage with the idea that it's forever. And that's kind of a new concept for me. Right. Because, you know, well, same for I did. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they don't anymore. And um, so anyway, I don't even know how we got on that topic. I don't remember. Well, no, I was bringing up how I think there's a generational difference in our interests and investment mm -hmm. in marriage, right? That in previous generations, marriage was a real investment for my grandparents. It was an investment in wealth and survival. For my yeah. parents, it was an investment in the idea of marriage to show the next generation that they could, I think despite yeah. the difficulties and that came with mine it. was just spiritual indoctrination, right? There you go. Marriages are ordained by God. And so you stick with it. God's well, going to teach you through it. And in the Jewish community, marriage is how you get to the point of having a family, which is the nucleus kind of the, the, the driving mm -hmm. engine of Judaism. And it doesn't have to be right. It's not right. Judaism's main interest is not in the family. It's in, you know, the potential, the beautiful, you know, highest potential of each individual. Right. And if that means having a family, that's a wonderful thing as well. But if not, I don't think it's the be all and end all of it. Uh, and so uh, this is really interesting, especially to know, you know, kind of the incongruence about how faith based communities end up treating people going through divorce. I imagine it was difficult for you, you know, being, you know, married to a pastor in the community 
and then maybe feeling this power imbalance about things, maybe feeling really outside about things. Um, I wonder how my ex felt in that way. I wasn't a rabbi in a community, but what it felt like to be divorcing a rabbi at that time. Um, you know, and so uh, I, it's wonderful that you bring that up. Um, and also just to know kind of still in other faith-based communities too, it's a difficult thing for people to deal with and nobody really knows what to do with it, despite the fact that divorce is as old as marriage, biblically speaking. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. This has been a great conversation, Jennifer. Thank you for having it with me. This is interesting. I'm going to have to listen to your podcast more often. Wonderful. So we'll have someone else who does that. That's great. Good to know. More listeners. Yeah. We love our listeners here. I'll be number two. <laughs> Jennifer, is there anything else you think people could really uh, need that's really helpful for them while they're going through crisis? Well, community. Mm. And um, that's the hardest part because at least for me, I'm one of those people when I'm in crisis, like I cut people off. Like I go into a cave um, for various reasons that I don't need to get into on this podcast. But, you know, my close friends know if I ever say, you know what, I need you. Like I am well past the time when I need them. You know, if I text one of my friends, I'm like, you know, I really need a hug right now. Like I needed that like two months ago. Um, And so I'm the worst to really give this advice, but it's true how helpful. And when I went through my divorce, when I finally got past the shame and opened up and had a group of girlfriends who chose me, you know, even one who had grown up with my ex and known him his whole life, I was terrified. She'd try to be like one of those neutral people. And what he had done to me, in my opinion, there was no neutrality. Um, and she was just furious and she's just still one of my best friends, um, to this day. And, and to have that support was key, but I also think, so outside of that community, when you're going through a big crisis, you need, oftentimes you need to have someone to talk to who isn't in that community, because I know every step of the way when I went through something horrible and my friends would be like, what happened in court? Or my mom would ask, they would get so outraged because what happened to me was outrageous and they love me. Um, But the therapist I hired would only get a little outraged. Like I wasn't gonna ruin her day. Like I would ruin my mom's. Um, And so to have that person that I could give all the big stuff to without upsetting them and to work through that and then give a truthful, but less fired up version to my friends, you know, so I didn't rile their hearts, I think was really, really helpful for everyone. So I do think that's wise, you know, so I, I mean, it's ironic that I spend my life as, as my career as being someone's dumping ground. Well, right. And, and containing that for them um, so they can, you know, have that safe space and they don't have to bring all of the things to the community all of the time. It's a great and sacred responsibility. I thought I had a therapist mm-hmm. when I was going through my divorce. I also had my men's group. And I remember distinctly a moment where I, you know, I gave myself over to the other guys there. And I was really lucky to have elder men there who had been through circumstances like that before, who knew how to hold me and create a space for me. And I remember one evening just screaming my throat dry because I just needed to get so much out. And I knew that in the process of doing that, I wasn't going to offend them. 
that they were going to be there and they were going to witness it and they were going to be my brothers in the process. And so I, you know, having that space exactly like you said is incredibly helpful for people. It makes life much more manageable. You have to just get it out. You mm -hmm. have to exercise it. Mm -hmm. uh, this has been a great conversation, Jennifer. Thank you for having it with me and going down this rabbit hole of exploring how uh, divorce can be a place of freedom and emancipation and liberation for people uh, to move from places of narrowness to great expanse, to feel more free in their lives and to leave crisis behind without it defining them. Uh, it's been wonderful. Thank you for sharing your wisdom and your practical steps with us. Uh, it's been great. It's been great getting to know you and becoming your friend. Uh, so this is really lovely. And um, folks, if you have stories of how you got past crisis in your life, um, maybe if these steps have helped you, uh, you can certainly, uh, you know, find this book on Amazon, right? Can't you get the book on Amazon? Amazon, Target, Barnes and Noble. Excellent. Okay, good. You can yeah. get it anywhere they sell good books. Uh, and you should certainly pick this one up. Uh, share your stories of how you got through crisis with us. You can reach it at the Jewish Divorce Project at gmail.com. You can find us on the web at www.thejewishdivorceproject.com. And you can find us on Instagram and Facebook at the Jewish Divorce Project. And don't worry, folks, Sheva will be back next week. She's on vacation, taking some personal time, which is what gave us this wonderful opportunity to have Dr. Jennifer Love on as our guest this week. And we're so very grateful for her presence and her wisdom. Thanks again, Jennifer, very much. Thanks for having it. me. And I'm on Instagram and Clubhouse. So if anyone wants to find me there, there I am. What's your handle on Instagram and Clubhouse? Dr. Author. Jennifer Love. Dr. Author Jennifer Love. It's a lot of Jennifer Loves and a lot of Dr. Jennifer Love. So absolutely. Dr. Author, and there's underscores between each word. So it's nice and simple to remember. Wonderful. Thanks again, <laughs> Jennifer. This has been so great. Uh, I look forward to future conversations. Thank you, Noam. Happy holidays. Mm -hmm.